Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who alone does great wonders, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who by understanding made the heavens, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who spread out the earth above the waters, for His steadfast love endures forever forever to him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever the sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever the moon and the stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever and the psalmist will go on again there in psalm 136 to continue to reiterate that truth that the steadfast love of the lord endures forever we're going to continue our series as we walk through the book of Hosea. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning, Hosea 2. And my hope and prayer is that you walk away realizing what that means, that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. What does God's steadfast love mean? How does that apply to me? And how do I live in light of that? And so um, I, I want to bring us to that. So this morning as we make our way to Hosea chapter 2, I want to share with you just a uh, a great truth that the Lord used in my life through Two simple quarters. Um, not very much, right? Two simple quarters. Um, how, how many do we have this morning here that you are a middle schooler? Would you raise your hand? If you are a middle schooler, would you raise your hand? We got any middle schoolers in here? Will, raise it up a little higher. Blakey B, any more? Right, is there any more middle schoolers I'm, I'm missing? No? Uh-oh, Miss Savannah's trying to join in, right? Um, all right, all right. So um, I was in middle school, and... Uh, my dad did something, usually most Sunday mornings, he would, he would hand us a lot of times, especially when I was younger, um, just two simple quarters, right? And it was our responsibility to put those in Sunday school. And um, I'm not always the sharpest knife in the drawer, so to speak, right? Um, and so a few fries short of a Happy Meal sometimes. Um, and so anyway, um, I had these two quarters, and with two quarters you can do a lot of things, especially as a middle schooler, right? And the thing that I decided to do is that big drink machine that said Coke on it had my favorite drink, which was a Mellow Yellow, right? And so I decided that instead of using my two quarters, I would use my two quarters um, for the drink rather than put them in the Sunday school. Here's the reality of why I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. My dad was the Sunday school treasurer, right? And so he knew when my class came in that the two quarters were either there or they weren't. And so um, after church that Sunday, we had the, the dialogue about the two quarters, and of course, I I put them in, right? Of course I did, right? I'm a good son, like just many of you were. And so he kind of plays along for a minute. And then he becomes the harsh reality that I opened up your class and your quarters weren't in there. And so what happened? And um, finally I start to cough up um, the, the mellow yellow story uh, slowly. And um, some discipline came in my life. Um, but the reason why I share the story is not because simply I, uh, I was lying, I was deceptive, I used it for my own end, I received discipline, I was in trouble. Um, what happened that, that, that transformed me from the story was not simply the lie, not simply um, that I had betrayed my father's trust, that I had made a poor decision with the money he had given me. Not only did I receive discipline, what transformed me was is what happened the following Sunday morning. It's the following Sunday morning when I prepared to go to Sunday school. Dad said, come over here, Blake. And I, he reached in his pocket, and I heard this. And I struck my hand out, and two quarters went back in. And in that moment, 
my dad's steadfast love overwhelmed even the discipline and all the things that I had done wrong that week. And this morning what I hope to capture from you is that you walk away realizing that your father continues to put the quarters in your hand despite all of our rebellion and foolishness and sin. And there's something about a God, a Father, that we can love and trust that continues day after day, week after week, to put those quarters back, even when we don't deserve it, or we've made a total mess of it, we've lied, we've tried to deceive Him in whatever way. And so my hope and prayer is you leave this morning realizing how great and awesome your God is. So let's jump to it, Hosea chapter 2. God begins this, uh, Hosea uh, chapter 2, is it's going to kind of... Function as almost if you've walked in a courtroom, right? You're going to kind of follow a, a legal, um, um, almost courtroom type setup where they, they're going to, there's going to be prosecution, there's going to be indictments, um, there's going to be judgment rendered, all of these things. And so it's, it's kind of working like a courtroom scene. Sometimes the prophets do that throughout the Old Testament. And so Hosea is going to do that here as God speaks. Hosea chapter 2, beginning verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and your sisters, you have received mercy. And look what he says here. Almost as a father speaking to the children to tell their mother something, right? And, and she's been unfaithful. If you What was last week? She, she's made a mess of things. Um, and the reminder was this. She, she reminds us all of ourselves. Um, plead with your mother. Plead for, he says, she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breast. He's asking for a first step, and oftentimes when have moments of talking with folks, um, whether it's marital or otherwise, it's always important, I think, just to have some simple first steps, right? I mean, if there's issues in your marriage right now, maybe over mistrust, a simple first step is really handling cell phones, Facebooks, things like that. Getting transparency out there, getting freedom, those are some things. This guy here is asking for some first steps. He's saying, listen, you can't continue to live like a prostitute. And interesting to the, to the context, and again, some of it's hard because we're not sure how it works with Gomer, exactly when she was walking out and being unfaithful on him. And so it's kind of hard. We're not really sure. And some of it's how does the prophet treat? Is he speaking here about Hosea and Gomer more? Is he using it as an analogy to the Lord? What, what exactly is his interchange? And so uh, sometimes it's just hard to interpret some of those. But interesting to the dialogue here is the fact that when he, when he makes these statements here about putting these things away from her face and from between her breasts, um, oftentimes in the midst of, uh, I know we use the word Baal, um, Baal is kind of how it's really actually pronounced, um, but this Baal worship um, is that throughout that they would dress up. Um, and so you're going to see it throughout the book, but a lot of the false worship was taking place. There was lots of sexual morality that was a part of that. And so in the midst of this, um, he's saying, listen, uh, often you're involved in worshiping other gods. Again, this is speaking mainly to Israel, right? That you've been worshiping other gods. You've been unfaithful to me, God's saying. And he's saying, it's time to stop that. It's time to stop that way of life. It's time to walk away from that path. And it's time to return to me. And that's what literally there. He's saying, listen, it's time to plead, right? It's time to say, this is, you need to walk away from that. So there's this, this appeal that's being made at the very beginning of the context saying, listen, I'm calling you to leave that life of sin, right? Um, to walk away from that life of sin. So walk with me further. Verse 3. Here's the first warning. Lest. 
Here's what I kind of want you to know. Here's, here's the warning of what's coming. He's going to follow that with some evidence. But this is what he says, verse 3 of Hosea 2. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. He says, listen, um, it's, it's interesting that uh, Exodus chapter 21, verse 10, says it was the man's responsibility to provide food, clothing, marital rights for his wife. And he's saying, listen, you, you've revoked me, and so I'm revoking my rights, right? He says, I'm going to make you naked as the day you were born, right? You didn't have anything, and I want you to know that you're going to return to that because of your rebellion and not wanting to follow me. And then look what else he says. Not only that, he says, I'm going to make her like a, um, here we have a parched land and kill her with thirst, Interesting, um, a part of what happened here was, is that as the Canaanites worshipped Baal, as they looked forward and worshipped him, that he was the god of not only fertility, but he was also the god of the weather. And so what the people are doing is saying, listen, if we worship the god of the weather, if we offer up these sacrifices to him, right, that the land is in essence kind of the female, you've got to understand the imagery that's being used, he, he uses the, the, the land as the female, and he's saying, listen, this God is going to rain down. He's going to provide the male seed that's going to provide the land, right? The, the, the nourishment the land needs. That's the water, right? He's going to cause the rain to come down. And what's happening here is that God's attacking their God. And he's saying, I want you to know that your God's actually not fertile. Your God actually cannot do what you desire and think that that God can do. I know you're after that. I know you think that will provide the happiness. But I'm going to step in and show that your God's not really God at all. And so because of that, he says, your land's going to become parched. I'm going to kill you with thirst. I'm going to dry up your God, so to speak. And show you that I am the only true God. Let's go else he says here, verse 4. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. And then this statement here. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me. Look what it, say, look what it says here. Who give me, right? So this, these lovers, right? Now this is ultimately false gods, right? This is what they're after. These false gods. Who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. The people are going after other gods, and that's breaking the first commandment, right? Thou shalt have no other what? They have no other gods before me, right? They're breaking the first commandment, and listen, God says, I want you to know that you're claiming me as your God, but you're not living like it. You guys have, you guys have rejected me as your God. I want you to know that judgment is coming. I'm going to bring judgment upon the children of Israel. I'm bringing judgment to your house because of the way you've acted. But it's interesting. Look again there, verse 5. For, she said, I will go after my lovers. Why is she pursuing these other gods? Look what, this, look what the thought process is. Again, using the imagery, right? Why is Israel going after false gods? Well, because they give us bread and water. They give us wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. They've been deceived into thinking that false gods are the ones that provide that. And God's going to answer in a minute and say, actually, it was me all along who was providing. It was a reminder this morning we were bowing to pray and, and see you, you praying, you, you were praying and uh, you mentioned the word. You said that God causes the rain to what? What'd you say, see? The rain to fall what? On the just and the unjust alike. And it's God who's raining down his blessings, but they don't see it. And, and listen, I think it so often happens, right? I mean, we have these little moments where we think that the reason why we perform so well and whatever is because of the music we listen to. 
Or man, I had that awesome game because I had my lucky socks on, right? It's the socks. I can't change those. Can't wash those socks. It's these socks always, right? And so if we're not careful before long, like the socks get the reward. Before long, it's because that music I listen to. Before long, the reason why I make such great sales, well, because there's no salesman like me, right? I mean, there's nobody else that could talk like me. Nobody's as gifted as me. Nobody knows as much about their product as me. Um, if you're not careful, man, everything ultimately starts to come back to you or to all these little other things that you've built up. And the question God is challenging them, saying, listen, you don't realize it's me that gave you the mouth to speak anyway. It's me that gave you the body, that gave you, give you the health to help you get out of the bed this morning to even teach that class. I know you think you're the best teacher. I know you think all these things. I want you to know it's me. Right? I mean, that's what Paul tells the church at Corinth. He says, what do you have that you didn't receive? Then why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? He says, listen, everything you have is from God. Why are you acting like that you are somehow God's gift to the world or somehow all these other things are the reason why you're succeeding so well? He says, acknowledge where your treasure and your wealth and your prosperity and everything that's good in your life. Acknowledge where it comes from. That's what James would tell us in James chapter one, verse 19, that every good and every perfect gift comes from where? From God above. Every. Right. Everything comes from God, but they are confused here. He says, listen, I want you to know. Be careful about the little gods that can creep in. And you begin to credit everything else as the reason why your success. He says you need to know the reason why you have these things is because of God. And he's going to show them that. Therefore, right, this is the first. You're going to have three of these statements in chapter 2. They are crucial to the argument, right? If you're following along the courtroom scene, now the judgment is coming, right? This is the moment of judgment that starts. You've heard some of the accusations. You've seen some of the guilt. Therefore, God's saying, here's the judgment, right? And so, again, we've talked about it before, but about a 100 times in the book of Hosea, you're going to read statements like, I will. God is using, saying what he's going to do. Therefore, he says, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that, look what it says, she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. Excuse me. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Right? So there's a response. Right? So something's happening here. Let's kind of follow the flow of the argument and see if we can make sense of this. So God says, listen, I want you to know what I'm going to do in response to what you've been doing. I'm going to hedge up your way with thorns, and I'm going to build a wall against you so that you cannot find your paths. God says I'm bringing judgment, right? This is a hard passage, maybe even this verse here, to interpret exactly what God's doing. Is this more judgment on the land? What's exactly is he trying to use imagery? Um, the, the, the difficulty may be a little bit here of seeing what exactly God's doing. But if we watch a little bit further, I think we're going to see it. Look what it says here, verse 7. She shall pursue her lovers... But, look what it says here, they're not going to overtake them. She's going to seek, right? So there's pursuing, they're seeking, but again, you're not going to find them, right? We might even think about Matthew chapter 7, that those, ask, those who ask, they what? Receive. Those who seek will what? Find. And those who knock, the door shall be open, right? You're with Jesus in Matthew 7. But he says, listen, I want you to know that God's doing something specific in the midst of this judgment. I think this is very, very practical. I want you to see this. So he says, listen, I want you to know I'm walling up the ways around. You're going to pursue things, but you're not going to find them. You're looking hard after them, but you're not actually going to get there. You're not going to get what you want. And the question might come to us is, what's God doing here? 
Right. Why is God preventing these things? And maybe you've been there at moments in life saying, God, I don't understand. Why did the door close on that relationship? God, why did the door close on that job? God, why did things seemingly fall apart in that finance, that deal, that whatever? God, why did the door, Lord, I thought for sure it was that school. I thought exactly where I was supposed to go. God, that was exactly what my major was supposed to be. God, that was exact. I mean, like you had it figured out and somehow some things changed in our life, right? And some of you may have lived long enough that you kind of saying the great poet who maybe didn't know it, Garth Brooks, right? This great theologian, maybe he was on to something when he said, sometimes we need to thank God for what? Unanswered prayers, right? Now, we know that his theology is not always right there. God always answers. But we understand maybe what Garth was getting at. Sometimes we miss it in life. And maybe you're there. Maybe you don't understand today why doors have closed, why things have happened the way they've happened, why it's happened to you and your family, why you and that situation And God's saying to them here, listen, I want you to know that you were pursuing other things other than me. I scribbled this down. Um, Now, it might be that God prevents what they most desire because he knows what they most need. It might be that in your life, God prevents what you most desire because he knows what you most need. And that's challenging. Why is God again? Why is he cutting off these things? Why is he preventing it? Look what it says there. Further with me, verse 7, then. See that statement there? Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Why is God using all this judgment and these things that maybe they don't understand to bring them back? Right? Sometimes in the midst of, God, I don't understand why all that's happening in my life, why all that's unfolding the way it is. God's saying, I want you to know that all of this judgment, all these things that I'm doing is not simply just so I can sit up and say, I'm judging you. There's no hope. No, the hope is that this is a loving father who is disciplining his children to bring them back to him. This is a moment of hope, a moment of mercy, of grace, of saying, listen, maybe I've misunderstood how judgment is supposed to even work. Maybe I don't understand exactly how discipline is even supposed to happen for me as a parent as I deal with my children. The discipline isn't just simply me being mean for the point of being mean or taking this away so I can take that away and feel better. No, the hope is in the midst of this that it is redemptive, that God does a work in their heart, that they feel the separation and the need to return. That's what he's saying there. Then she shall say, listen, God's saying, listen, I'm going to close off your path so that you, in that moment, hopefully of weakness and brokenness, will realize, man, I need Jesus Lord, I need to return to you. The evidence in the courtroom continues, verse 8. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her her silver and gold. It says all along, listen, you were thanking and praising all these other gods for all your great accomplishments, and really it was me. It was me. And in this striking moment again of accusation, all the things that God used, look what it says, you took and you used it for your worship of Baal. You worshiped other gods with it. You worshiped other gods. Listen, I mean, God has given you and I, guys, a body. Have you taken what God's given you and used it for sexual desires of any desire that you want? God has given you finances. Have you taken that and used it to fill up your own kingdom? God has given the vast, 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 vast majority of you great health, even if your health may be struggling today. 
that you could even be up today out of the bed, that you could be present here. I wonder, are you using that health for your own ends or for the glory and the service of God and his kingdom, and the love of others? You see, everything that we have is a gift from God. And our lives are a stewardship, a life of saying, God, thank you. My life is the worship. So he says, listen, though, even the things that I gave you, man, you use it to worship other gods. And so then it comes again. The second, therefore, it's in verse nine. Judgment continues. Therefore, he said, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I'll take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. See, God gave it to you for good. And man, you've twisted it. Now uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. There's a judgment that God says I'm bringing that no one can save you from. This is serious. Verse 11 of Hosea 2 continues. And I'll put an end to all her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. This is interesting, all right? So follow this line of reasoning just for a moment. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. Do you see that? They assume the prosperity of their land is because this God Baal, who is this God of the weather, has provided rain and therefore their crops have prospered and they've got all of these great things. They're crediting what God has done to another God. They think this is their wages. Listen, the indication is that of a prostitute who has gone and slept with someone and said, listen, you now receive payment for what I offered you. They are worshiping these other gods who now they seem have seemingly answered. And they're saying, well, of course, we, they owe us. God says, guys, that's me. So he says, I'm going to lay waste your vines and your fig trees. And I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field should devour them. And listen to this. this. Verse 13 provides clarity on what's happening here. Look at this. And I will punish her for the feast days. So again, the feast days, which we had back in verse 11. Let's see this just for a moment. The feast days have actually become the feast days of the Baals. When she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers. And listen to what God says. You forgot me, declares the Lord. What happened was it's the people of Israel had all of these different feasts that God had given them. Instead of using those to worship God, they were using them to worship other gods. And so, specifically that, that of tabernacles, man, the wine, all of these things, the figs were needed. And God says, I'm going to take it away so you can't have your feast anymore. This is a serious moment of judgment that God is bringing upon the people of God. It's tough. It's hard. And then what you're going to see throughout the book of Hosea is, is the fact that even though there is great judgment, we said it last week, mercy what? Mercy triumphs over judgment. And it happens again right here in verse 14 because, listen, you've heard all this. You're not expecting that mercy's coming. You're not expecting a moment of grace. And yet God walks in to a people just like you and just like me that do not deserve it. That we've worshipped all kinds of other things. We've gone after all kinds of other gods. We've tried to satisfy our souls with all this other stuff. Watch this. Watch this again. This is your third judgment statement. Verse 14 of Hosea chapter 2. Therefore, he says. Look at that. And then this moment happens. Like, brace yourself. Here comes more judgment, guys. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I'm going to bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. 
These are words that are used of a man romancing a woman when he's courting her. These are not words of judgment that you would expect. This is not the God that you and I maybe created him to be. This is a God of great grace and mercy, even in the midst of judgment. He says, listen, I want you to know I'm going to speak tenderly to you. You, Do you deserve it? Absolutely not. Guys, that's why their story is ours. There's not one of us here that deserve God to speak kindness to us. There's not one of us here that deserve any bit of God's grace and mercy of the sacrifice of his son. But that's God's great love toward you and I. You will never earn it. You will never be good enough. You've not done too much to ruin it. That's why it's still grace. You're not going to be good enough to keep it. It was grace to begin with, and by God's grace, that's how it's going to finish. He's your author, and He's the finisher of your faith. It's grace. Their story, some 2,700 years ago, still remains our story. A people that have messed it up and blown it and don't deserve it, and all we deserve is judgment, and yet there is a God of grace and kindness who steps in and says, Not so. My son will take that for you. Those two quarters, Blake, those lies, that deception of your father. All those years ago. My son will take that for you. It's this beautiful moment of God's mercy and grace. And he says, look what he says here. I mean, this is just unbelievable. God just begins to pile on blessings. That's what the rest of the chapter is just unbelievable mercy and grace. And I hope that you hear it as if you were sitting there and thinking, how in the who is this God? That his steadfast love endures forever. Look at this. Verse 15 of Hosea 2. And there I will give her vineyards. Look, the vineyards are coming back. The things that were ruined. He says, I want you to know they're coming back. The valley of Achor, a door of hope. There's in Joshua chapter 7, this guy by the name of Achon who goes and steals these robes and this gold from Babylon. He hides it in his tent and it causes a mess for the people of Israel. Many people get killed in the battle because of him. And God says, listen, the place of this great massacre, of this great moment of disobedience and rejection of me, I want you to know that I'm actually going to make that a door of hope. You see, your biggest mistakes, your biggest failures, your biggest you wish you could hide them in those back closets that nobody could see, God says, I'm actually going to turn and use that for good. Because that's who I am. That's how great I am. That's how awesome I am. And I want you to know there's no other God that could do that. He says, listen, it's actually a door of hope for you. That when you see, see you and I, we see our failures and we see all that. And God sees the door of hope. Why? Because Christ stepped in and took that failure. He took that sin upon him. That there's hope now for you and I in the midst of our sin and sorrow. And man, the people of Israel are a reminder to us. What a breath of fresh air the word of God is to us this morning. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me what? My husband. This is a God of mercy and grace who receives back the wayward. I know you haven't lived like my spouse. I know you've rejected me. I know you've worshipped all these other gods. I know you thought everything that I gave you, you thought it was to them. I want you to know that even though it seems like I should give up on you because you've given up on me, that's not who I am. I'm the great I am. And I want you to know that I'm doing all this, that in that day, right, this is where all this greatness is leading, that you're going to actually cause me my husband. No longer will you cause me my Baal. For I will, look what he says here again, for 
I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Why are these names, why are they being removed? Well, you probably know it, right? When you, most of you, when you finish your prayer, you usually say, in what? In Jesus' name, amen. Why? Because there's something of authority and power of mentioning his name. He says, listen, I want you to know I'm going to take the names of the false gods and you won't even thank or mention them. Why? Because when you thank and you mention them, you're calling upon their power and authority, which actually can't help you anyway. And so I'm going to take them away because you're going to finally know once and for all that there's a great God who has power that no one else can do. So I want you to know, I want you, listen, this is leading you to come back to a loving relationship with me. I know time's going, so we're going to pick up pace just a little bit. So, so hold on with me. Here we go. Verse 18. And I will make them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. Man, all of these, all these wild animals, all these things they had to fear, be worried about. God says, I'm going to bring a covenant, right? I mean, listen again, none of this is deserved. None of this is earned. This is just a God of benevolent grace and mercy. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. Can you imagine that? No more fear of North Korea and what's going to come. and No more of all of the chaos in the midst of our land. I will make you lie down in safety. Can you imagine that? That you will live in a kingdom forever where there will be no more war ever. Now obviously we realize this day hasn't come yet. This is looking forward to what Christ is bringing. I will betroth you to me forever. God says, I still want you. Right, I, I betroth you. This is covenant language. He's saying, I want you as my spouse. Some of you feel like you are so unworthy, man. You look in the mirror and you see all of your past sin and failure mistakes and God just keeps screaming to you from the Word. I see that. My son paid the penalty. I love you. I want you. There's nothing you've done that's too dirty, that's too far gone, that's too messed up, that's too skeletal in the closet. My grace covers that. My son died for that. I want you as mine. I'll betroth you, he says to me. Look at these. These adjectives are unbelievable of how this betrothal works, right? This is the relationship God desires with his people. Listen to this. He says, I want you to know it's forever. I betroth you to me. It's in righteousness. It's in justice. It's in a steadfast love. It's in mercy. I betroth you to me in faithfulness so that you shall know that I'm the Lord. It's often um, when the marriage would come about that, that the husband and his family would pray a bride price. Um, I wasn't as aware of this until I was recently there in Zimbabwe last fall and uh, realized that this still functions highly in that culture. And so um, to have a daughter who's getting married, many times there'd be multiple bridal dresses, lots and lots of money. Um, and again, I've shared with it before, but the city I was in, Machingo, 97% of the people there are unemployed. So you can imagine these great bride prices that are being paid for families that have nothing anyway. And God says, listen, I realize that you can't pay the price to come back to me because you've betrayed me. You have nothing to give. So I'll pay it for you. And it's in love. And it's in justice. It's in mercy. It's in faithfulness, it's forever, and its name is Jesus. That's the price God paid for you and my betrayal, friends. That's the grace of God in the midst of all of this. And so he closes out this chapter by saying these words, verse 21. 
And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. God is restoring, redeeming them from the curse. From their disobedience, God is bringing a blessing. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, look at this, you are my God. God is after again those that will worship him in spirit and truth. So maybe in just closing moments of just a little application. What might it look like if our relationships were based upon grace and mercy and not what people earn with us? Apply it maybe to a moment to you and your spouse. What if today your spouse didn't have to earn your approval by being good enough by whatever it was, whether it's cleaning the house enough, offering their body to you, being sweet enough, thoughtful enough? What if you love them based upon grace and mercy? Because that's how God's loved you, right? What if kiddos here today that your parents didn't have to perform to a certain standard for you to be like kind to them? To not roll your eyes or to slam your door or to say smart remarks or to not text them back after they've texted you want to know what's going on? What if your parents didn't have to perform for you to obey them? That you just obeyed them because there's a God who's loved you infinitely well even when you didn't deserve it and you've, he's called you to now obey your parents and everything he says for this pleases the Lord. And so in response to how God's loved you as kids, you're just going to show love and obedience to your mom and dad or whatever authority figure or figures God's placed in your life. What if students walk back into the classrooms of Greene County this week. And their teachers didn't have to perform or teach well enough. Or be kind to them enough. Or to do enough right things. That they would listen and pay attention and show respect. But they listen and they pay attention and they respect. And they work as hard as they can. Why? Because they realize there's a God who loved them. When maybe they didn't deserve it. Or maybe they didn't have their best day so to speak. Do you see how all of a sudden this begins to impact every area of our life? Whether it's adults, children, whoever, that God's love should do something to our lives that transforms us from the inside out. That we don't walk around trying everyone to measure up to our standards. Why? Because we definitely don't want God treating us that way. We don't want God giving us what we deserve. Now listen, there's still judgment, there's still discipline in this passage. I'm not saying let's just kick all that out. But I want us to walk away saying, listen, if we have rules that people can never, ever meet, then what's the need of grace and mercy? Do you see those things should drive us there? The fact that we are trying to love other sinners and we're asking other sinners to love us is a reminder that each of us need the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And just as you've received, now go and do likewise. What a moment of grace and mercy to people some 2,700 years ago that we ourselves find here in 2000 A.D. still needing. The same God that they needed to rescue them is the God that you need to rescue you and the God that I need to rescue me. And these folks didn't do anything to earn or deserve it. So who's your God? Who do you worship? As for me and my house, we will worship and serve the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, please 
Help us see your great grace and mercy. God, I just openly confess that I'm a very judgmental person. I've made decisions. I know that I've offended people in this room. I'm in this community, in my own family. Um, At times I have not been very gracious or merciful. Father, I ask for your forgiveness, but I also ask that you would show me that I can go and make those things right with them. I, I pray for those that they might come to me if I've offended them. Father, I pray the same, not only for me, but God, also for those in this church that feel that about others in this church. Or maybe from another church they left. Or maybe they feel that toward their spouse right now, or kids with parents, or people back at work, or I don't know, God, I know the list goes on and on. I just pray that we wouldn't simply hear this word and say, man, that's great. So glad that he forgave me. I pray now we would go and show that grace and mercy to others. And so I know that's by the power of your spirit and the truth of your word. And so, Lord, I just entrust it to you that you would draw people here today who need forgiveness, who have messed it up big time, just like me. I pray right now today you would draw them and let them know they can be forgiven of everything because of your son. Speak to them, God, please, by the truth of your word, for the glory of your son, Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. I invite you this morning.